His name is Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. It's classic. Hello, world, I'm in lockdown, girl. It's misbehavior, listeners to the misbehavior journal club i'm amiel moreno phd here with nicole davies bamf and we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny people bringing you the behind the scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor hydroxytamine and humanity <laughs> why'd you do that to me so so close <laughs> i i i'm sorry it was mean Hydroxytryptamine. Yeah, now you got it. Yeah, you've, there we you've go. seen that one before. <laughs> I have. So what's up with you? I haven't seen you in such a long time. I know. It's been a while. You made it through the winter. I, I did. I uh, woke from hibernation. I went out into public Ooh. recently for the first time in a long time. What'd you do? I went to a workshop at Princeton, but that's uh, <gasps> you don't care about that. You're just dropping those Ivy League names. Yeah, yeah, just hanging out at the Ivies, you know, <laughs> going to the three ice cream shops on campus there at Princeton. Not everyone gets that opportunity, but... Uh, Which one was your favorite? Uh, Halo. Go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you must know. <laughs> and the, But before that, I went to Long Island to see a couple of friends, Carlos and Fernanda. Ah. Uh, yes, they're from Ecuador. Yeah, I was meaning to ask you, do you only meet with Latin friends of yours? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's kind okay. of, I'm a little prejudiced. Um, I've noticed. Yeah. I, ha- I had the nickname White Sikin at one point. Oh my gosh. That was, th- that was from a Latin American person, so. Um, so it's okay? Yeah, it's okay for them to okay. say that. <laughs> uh, What's the Long Island like? Did you know, here are two things that I did not realize that were on Long Island. First of all. Cold Spring Harbor, yeah. which for people that are not in science is like, for biomedical science, it's like the holy land. They have a sign outside that's like, uh, we, we're going to figure out genetics soon. <laughs> it always seems like um, science summer camp. Yeah, yeah. Right. The other thing that they do there. So first of all, they're on the cutting edge and have been forever because it's like some, I don't even know how it works. They have funding. I yeah. don't know. Like, from Dr. Spring. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I'm an imposter who doesn't belong in academia, because my parents were not PhDs that would have trained me into know where Cold Spring mm. Harbor came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so they're always doing like science summer camp and running all of these courses. Like, go learn to do the latest omics analyses or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for like neuroscience, everything. Uh, so and don't they have like Gordon meanings there too? They probably do, yes. Those okay. Gordon Research Conferences, yeah. It's the Gordon Meeting Conferences. <laughs> exactly, that's the uh, jingle. Yeah. Just like the actual Gordon Research Conference jingle. No, it's because I ate fish today. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's where the money came from. It's, the, it's, it's Gordon. <laughs> he started Cold Spring Harbor. It's a fishing town. It makes sense. God damn it, Gordon. <laughs> I want to go down in history, not just for my fish sticks, but for... So... Yes. Did your trip just <laughs> <laughs> stop you there? Did, <laughs> did you go to Cold Spring Harbor? Or so was we this did. just a pleasure cruise? No, we went to Cold Spring Harbor just to check it out. So basically, like, Carlos and Fernanda, hanging out with them. So they're both biologists. Like, they've done mm-hmm. field work, like, studied birds in the wild. Which, you know, a lot of people in neuroscience haven't done that. 
And so it's so amazing to see. They will just see like an osprey and they'll be like, that's an osprey. That's a juvenile. I think it's doing begging calls. They're, and they're just, they're like developing an ethogram of its behavior on the fly, like standing. And I'm just like, what? what that's So that one's a bird? Like, I'm trying to catch up as like an imposter who doesn't eat, you know. Yeah. You're like, let me get an electrode to shove it in its skull. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, yeah, can we anesthetize it and put it in a room and like blow some air on it as a stimulus to... <laughs> That's the only way. It'll be just like nature. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) That experiment will help me understand what it's experiencing in the real world. Mm -hmm. So not only do I watch them and like just think about how I'm such a bad biologist, but then they also, they like to tell me about Ecuador because like many people who are here as immigrants, you know, they miss their home that they came from. Mm -hmm. So like we're walking on the beach, seeing these big ass seagulls and they're telling me about stuff at home. They're like, oh, we used to get the like different types of like street food. And then Carlos, Carlos kept saying like, oh, but my mom wouldn't let me have that because that was not safe to have. <laughs> it sounded about like, safe to have. Yeah, like, like she was, it sounded like she's very overprotective. It's like the Ecuadorian version of like a slushy or like cotton candy. Oh, right. Okay. Like, like a person on a bicycle would have like a big cooler on the front. Yeah. All right, so not safe to have as in, oh, that one has shards of glass in it. Like, safe to have, like, that has too much sugar. No, like, his mom actually thought it had shards of glass in it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, you can't have the slushy from that scary, low-class man. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So they they kept telling me all these stories about that. Then they were telling me this just randomly came up. And then they started telling me about this train in Ecuador. This is the most exciting thing that happened my whole trip. Uh-huh. It's called it's called the devil's nose, la nariz del diablo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, so it's like one of three parts of the original train system that's still running in Ecuador, you know, because just like in America, they're like, we don't need infrastructure. We'll just everyone okay. have a car. Uh, but this part, it's famous worldwide because like a crazy capitalist built it. They were like, uh-huh. we need a train to go over this mountain. But this mountain is clearly not made for a train to go over. It's like a Panama Canal situation. So this train, the way it works is it it like zigzags across the mountain. So it'll go all the way over to one side, stop, start going in reverse. And then, what? Yes. <laughs> so, so it's like this, it's like a slow motion carnival ride from hell, right? <laughs> like, Why couldn't they just, I don't know, get some Chinese immigrants and do forced oh, no, labor with them? There were still plenty of Chinese immigrants that died. And, and actually, oh, okay, and it was capitalists from America that sent them there to die. They were like, here's how we did it. Let me help you out. Phew, <laughs> but it's, yeah. Yes. So of course, uh, you know, as long as they did it the traditional way. Now, when you said the devil's nose, I immediately thought of that feeling you get when a guy starts eating your asshole and you're just... <laughs> Go on. I mean, I know what you're talking about, it's of the course, devil, but... It's the devil's nose. <laughs> the devil in this... I'm not going to ask that. Okay. So, Carlos told me, uh, you know, everybody rides this because it's like a famous ride in Ecuador. It's just, you know, you have to ride the devil's nose. <laughs> By which I mean the train, not like uh-huh. you have to get a guy to eat your ass up. So, so, and then when they got on the train, the other thing is that you can ride on the roof of the train. Oh, no. And his mom, who up to this point would not let him eat treats in the street, she was like, we got to go on the roof of the train. <laughs> <laughs> and when I heard this story, I imagine like people just like clinging to the roof of the train. 
You know, like yeah. like when you hear that, you're like, what? But no, it's like it's like a London like double decker bus situation. Like it's set up so. Okay. But immediately, Carlos is like, so she made us get on the train. But there were two tourists that got decapitated. Not when Carlos was on the train. In the same period of time, they were like trying to get electricity up there. Oh no! Yeah. Yeah, and so a wire, and it just took somebody's <laughs> head off or something apparently. So uh, yeah, that's what I learned about Ecuador. Cool. That's my story. That's the most exciting thing that's happened to me. Yeah, sounds like it. So, oh, I want to ask about Long Island. The accent. Did mm-hmm. you come across some yeah. very native people <laughs> and accents? It was great. So we went to uh, get cash out of an ATM, and mm-hmm. we're coming out of the Bank of America, and this guy's coming in, and he's like, hey, hold that door open for me, okay, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> and And... And then uh, Carlos was holding the door. So I was like, can you hold the door for him? And he's like, Carlos said to me, oh, he was talking? (laughs) I didn't even, yeah. It's very. Did you not hold the door for him? We did. I I caught it. I caught it. But there was definitely a language barrier, like between the Long Island accent and the Ecuadorian accent. That was going to be an international incident. Uh, Yeah, I did. I was basically a diplomat Mm -hmm. in that moment in time. How did it feel? That's, I, you know, I think I deserve a Nobel. Uh-huh. I'll call the UN. Thank you. Um, they're not in charge of that. But that, No, but you can call anyways. See what I'm happens. So, yeah. You know, nobody calls them. I know. They, like they're lonely. Kofi never is lonely. Me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just been recovering from COVID. Yeah. I tried working out and then later in the day, I felt an upset stomach and I was like looking back at what I had eaten that day and it was like, nothing bad nothing could have like yogurt doesn't upset your like stuff like that Mm. i realized it was from the like 15 crunches that i did that Mm, day that'll do it that was enough so i can't work out quite yet i'm gonna circle back to that um i've started to not eat as much sugars gonna like this is so boring nobody gives a shit but it kind of ties in with um the topic of the paper I'm going to be talking uh-huh. about that has to do with sugar tasting. And Wait, are you are you Carlos's mom? <laughs> I see. <laughs> the last time I had sugar was actually last night. I went to visit my family friend, Peppy, and we were out and about. And she went, she was like, oh, while we're in Ballard, we've got to pick up this French meringue that's sold in this place. Hmm. And broke off a piece of it. And, and it's just so good. That now I am hyper aware that in my kitchen, there is a tin that contains uh-huh. this chocolate almond meringue that it just mind blowing. But it just struck a chord given the fact that um, I was reading this paper about sugar consumption and um, made me do a bunch of background research on how horrible it is for you to eat too much sugar. Particularly, Carlos's mom, I mean me... <laughs> Made the right decision uh, not letting not letting her kid eat too much sugar because I just found a bunch of research that suggests that childhood eating patterns can lead to a lot of long-term changes in not only behavior, but some structural differences hmm. in adulthood hmm. and ability to like impulse control yeah, is yeah. affected. It's the marshmallow test, but with the meringue. Mm-hmm. What did that turn out to be? The marshmallow test is giving kids the option of a small amount of marshmallows now Mm -hmm. or a greater reward of marshmallows if they are patient and wait for the additional marshmallows. 
What was that related to? In Well, there's some debate about this. So the way you just described it, that's like the paradigm. That's like what they tell the kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you wait, I'm going to be back in five minutes and you can have three times as many marshmallows. But what they're trying to do is measure self-control. Mm-hmm. But then they turned out, they did a study, follow-up studies, and they're like, oh, actually, it just, it basically shows how poor you are, right? <laughs> right? Like, that, oh, yeah. that is a confound that they did not control for. It's like... If you're in an, uh, you know, an impoverished environment, yeah, I, hate where the word, this... I hate the word impoverished, but yes. Yeah, but that could be a paucity of all sorts of yeah. things. Money, stimuli yeah. or uh, affection. You don't have to make it too political by making it all socioeconomic with that term. No. Get over it, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, Some shared announcements. I want to thank the wonderful listeners who went on to iTunes and rated the show. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for just taking that 10 seconds, 15 seconds out of your day and doing that. I love you. You're the best listeners out there. And all the other listeners should feel bad for not being you. But they can be you if they just go on and and rate the show. Thank you very much. Yes, everyone should be you. Okay, so... (laughs) Uh, should we should we move on to some notable news before the meringue drags you out of your room into your kitchen, forcing you to eat it? Please, it's so good. Now, let's talk about some notable news. In this segment, we're going to briefly present a number of noteworthy events or findings from the world of science. Science, 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 science. I'll start us off with an article out of Neuron. It's titled serotonergic neurons translate taste detection into internal nutrient regulation. It's out of Berkeley University. The authors are Zipeng Yao and Kristen Scott. So we all know the story of Pavlov's dogs and how when they heard the approaching footsteps of the experimenters, they associated that with their feeding time, and so they'd start to salivate. That was an unconditioned stimuli that became connected with a reward, and so it was learned, and it was a big, well-known paradigm. But it's also an example of how your sensory system can make major changes to your physiological state. There are two phases to insulin production. In the absorption phase, you're going to have ingested food, and the levels of sugar in your blood are going to elevate to release insulin. But there's also a pre-absorption phase, This is also called the cephalic phase, which is spurred simply by your sensory environment telling you to prepare for food. We currently don't know much about how taste itself, before any food is processed in our gut, coordinates changes in our endocrine or our digestive systems, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting it does. So the major neurotransmitter that's responsible for um, modulating appetite and food intake across a bunch of different animals is serotonin. There apparently are a number of different serotonin, or 5-HT, that's the abbreviation for serotonin because we like jargon. There are a bunch of 5-HT neurons, and they all have different characteristics in terms of changing eating behavior, and it's all a big mess, so somebody needs to clear it up. So in comes Yao and Scott to examine the serotonergic pathways, or the serotonin-producing neuron pathways that communicate between your gustatory system 
and your endocrine or your digestive system. We know that we start eating something and before we even start digesting it, serotonin is telling us the rest of the brain something about what we just tasted. Telling the rest of the body. Oh. I thought the, I thought they were oh. in the brain. Oh. Serotonin's going all over the place. Oh yeah, you hear pathways and you assume that it's all central nervous system. <laughs> What a chauvinist. What a central chauvinist. I know, instead of peripheral. Yeah, these things are going Mm. everywhere to prepare for food that has just been tasted. So they're looking at these serotonin-producing neurons that are involved with tasting of sugary or bitter flavors. And they're finding out where they're projecting to and what effects they have when they're signaling to wherever they're projecting. So uh, how they decided to look at this is flies... Um, Drosophila researchers are probably used to having to defend their use of flies all the time, and they argue this by saying it's analogous to other systems. And and in this case, like mammals, Drosophilas, you know, they have serotonin neurons too that regulate appetite and food consumption, and they can taste sweet and bitter as well. And there are internal nutritive states that regulate by endocrine and digestive systems. But that's a little bit more boring. What they're saying is like tasting sweet has something to do with insulin increasing, but they don't know how. So I had to familiarize myself with so much fly anatomy that it really slowed down reading this paper. And I'm very happy to gloss right over that. I mean, you know, I love neuroanatomy. If we if we want to talk about the fly esophagus for three hours, I'm here for it. Let's let's do it. One of the crazy things that they did with the fly esophagus is they physically cut it so that they can make sure that the only input that the animal is receiving when they were testing it is the taste. And they weren't actually processing any of the nutrients associated with the taste at all. Can you imagine Whoa. how horrible that surgery would have been? <laughs> to, for the scientist or for the fly? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine doing it. I uh-huh. had to consider <clears throat> doing a surgery on baby mice to try to cut a specific um, nerve that was responsible for the, it was the laryngeal nerve so that I could make like mute pups. Right. And I could not figure out, it was just impossible. It was so small. How did they even do this with flies? It's it's crazy. Yeah. I can't imagine. No, no. And yet, and yet some scientists do this, like they get really good. And this is like a superpower, right? Like, you can start, if you can do this one thing that like cuts off a stimulus or something so that you can understand uh-huh. the role it's playing, like you can start a lab now, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, I can stick a wire in that muscle and no one else can. Have you ever worked in a fly lab before? No, I have definitely not worked in a fly lab. No, neither have I. Yeah. My last experience with Drosophila was from AP Bio in high school. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to do fly surgery. Definitely not. I can't even, I can't keep the mask on it. Trying to keep on. <laughs> We're losing him. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, fly surgery is exactly like other surgery with mammals. <laughs> Would argue any fly anatomist. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the good things about flies is you can come up with all these crazy mutants. And what they did was they used this one. Um, what's called a gal four driver line. Yeah, uh-huh. it's just a, it's a lady driver. Um, <laughs> no, they have 
change the genetics so that... Doesn't it? It makes the neurons blue. Like, whatever it's in, it just turns them blue. It makes it easier to visualize. Yeah. Yes. So they attached this to tryptophan hydroxylase, the enzyme that produces serotonin. Tryptophan hydroxylase, and for short, you call it TRH, so they could find their beloved serotonin neurons. This was really crazy. They had like six different lines, different versions of these TRH-GAL4 mutant lines. And what they ended up finding was some of the lines labeled the sugar and sweet sensitive neurons and other lines, it would just label the sugar. So can you imagine if they had only used one of those and were unable to characterize things correctly because they couldn't distinguish them? Hmm. It makes me scared for people that are using mouse lines and trying to do this sort of work. And if they just pick the wrong type of promoter, I didn't even get into exactly what the difference between these lines are. One's called K2 and the other one's called S. And fuck if I know, but when you're trying to make a line of mutant mice, that takes a lot more money than a line of mutant flies. And you don't have the resources necessarily to just do six of them and see Mm. if there's any difference between your drivers. Yeah, this stuff is hard. So it makes you worry. Mm Mm-hmm. So what did they find? Well, they were able to, with their six beautiful lines, characterize two distinct classes of 5-HT neurons that translate short-term changes in the taste, whether they were receiving a sweet or a bitter stimulus, into anticipatory physiological state changes. When they looked at these sugar-responsive neurons, they found that the processes, or the you know where the neuron is reaching out, it ended overlapping insulin-producing cells in the body. So these cells are responding to the sugar taste by releasing insulin. The pairing of sugar and the release of insulin had been recorded, but they didn't know how until now. Hmm. So knocking down the serotonin receptors in those insulin-producing cells didn't totally abolish this insulin production response when sweet taste was applied. So there's probably some other mechanisms. Yes, Kitter? Uh, Did you know cats can't taste sweet? I think I knew that at one point, but forgot it. Yeah. Yeah. They can produce their own vitamin C, so they Mm. don't need to eat fruit. And so thus they have no need to be able to taste if something has fructose in it. Whoa. So they like milk, but just for the protein. Yeah, yeah, and the fat content, I bet. Mm -hmm. So that's crazy. So we knew that there was some relationship like this before, but we never seen that nobody had demonstrated anywhere that this release of serotonin seemed to be causing this uh, surge of insulin. Yeah, and one of the reasons that they were able to do this, they say, is because of the simplicity of the fly nervous system. Mm -hmm. You're able to identify specific neurons and trace exactly where they go in these little fly bodies easier than you would in a larger animal. Yeah. They described it as numerically simplistic. Mm -hmm. When you boil that down, I guess that just means there are less neurons for you to have to look at here. Yeah. So when they purposely activated these serotonin sugar sensing neurons what they found and this by sugar neurons you mean like the sugar sensitive serotonin is that right 
Yeah, the sugar tasting neurons, okay. I should say. Okay. And they did this through heat. They attached a receptor onto them that would be sensitive to heat. So then in the warm environment, they were going to have their sugar neurons start firing. And mm. when they were in the warm environment and had this particular sensitivity in their sugar neurons, it led to a decrease in sugar consumption. Mm. So this is very strange, but their conclusion was consuming sugar and the taste of sugar releases insulin and has an effect to decrease sugar consumption. Everything else that I have found looking at sugar intake, it seems that eating sugar begets more sugar intake, like it's an addiction. Um, so this was a weird finding. Eating sugar could potentially lead to, you know, you have a stop mechanism built into that system. Hmm. Maybe you, you hit a point when you're eating ice cream where you, you're not physically full, but because of the spike of insulin or some other sense that is being transmitted with these neurons, a stop is being processed in your body that makes you uh, not finish the whole pint. I, I'm not familiar with that phenomenon myself, but maybe flies have it. I don't know. Flies can only eat so much ice cream. <laughs> I I wonder if it's has something to do with like, so you turn on the heat and then these sugar tasting serotonergic cells just start dumping out a ton of serotonin. Is that basically the idea? Yes. So I wonder if it's just like way outside of what normally, like if mm. I, if the fly gets a little sugar, then it would just keep having more, but it's just, it's just basically like dumping insulin, which is basically, <laughs> I mean, that's like the end effect, right? Like when uh -huh. you, when you eat a bunch of food, then your body, then your body's just like, here's all the insulin. Isn't that sort of the... Yeah. It could be something like that, or it could be just temporally, like in uh -huh. the moment, yeah. there'll be a, a decrease in the intake, but over time... It doesn't decrease your sugar consumption in the future. What you're saying is we should study these flies for weeks and see how much meringue they eat. Well, they would die because their esophagus has been cut. <laughs> oh, right. Good point. forgot about that. <laughs> uh, but we should definitely see if uh, their skin has more inflammation because uh, sugar consumption leads to inflammation of your skin and thus acne. And there's a meringue sitting... <laughs> In my kitchen right now. Uh, I hear it calling to you. I can, yep. It's just going to jump on your face and cause you to break out. <laughs> it's, exactly. like a, it's like a terrible horror movie. It's like that uh, face attacker from Aliens. <laughs> right, as a baked good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's sugar neurons. They also were able to identify and label bitter responsive 5-HT neurons. These looked drastically different than the sugar ones. They were fatter and they had more axon projection instead of more dendritic and thinner processes. Mm -hmm. So you could definitely characterize them just by sight. Mm -hmm. What they found is, it, unlike the sweet, activating this doesn't decrease the consumption of bitter. And it projects to a totally different region. It goes to the ventral nervous cord and as an excitatory effect on enteric neurons. And those are the neurons that are in your intestine. Neglected, very underrated neurons. Yes. Uh, we've talked about the vagal nerve in previous episodes. The vagal nerve is in part responsible for getting information from the enteric neurons up to the brain. So the crop 
is the only piece of fly anatomy that I will describe. It's a organ that's used for food storage, kind of like a second stomach. And when the flies had this bitter responsive neuron activated, it led to contractions of this organ. And so the release of its contents for the body of the flies to begin to process the nutrients. And that works just like the mammalian crop, like when I store it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I usually, I'm usually walking around with like at least one Big Mac on board that I'm just... Just saving for rainy day. Yeah. In my crop. Yeah. Yeah. Don't judge me. I often do. Their findings seem to suggest that these pathways are also responsible for like long-term behavior. So they prevent overconsumption in a sugar nutrient-rich environment. And in an environment where there's a bunch of bitter, like there's a bunch of food that's going bad, it's going to prepare the animal for a shortage of nutrients and release the nutrients that the animal is already storing in its crop because it thinks that the environment is, what was the term that we used for an environment that a kid is in where they want to eat Impoverished. Marsh- yeah, they're, they're in a food impoverished environment now. And huh. so let's release some food from the crop. Mm-hmm. All right. So these are just like a couple places that these neurons are going, probably some up to the reward centers in the brain that process the taste of good things versus bad things as being rewarding. But also, it highlights the fact that eating sugar substitutes, getting those sweet receptors active, even though there's no nutritive aspect to those artificial sweeteners, it's going to lead to drastic changes in your physiology. And it's one of the reasons why they're detrimental to people who are diabetic. Hmm. So if I have like, what are, what are, what's the name of a fake sugar? Because it's been so long that I... Aspartame? Classic, potentially <laughs> cancer-causing sugar substitute. Uh, the idea is that, that would, that's basically causing my serotonergic neurons to start firing off, mm-hmm. even if it's not giving me any of the calories that I'd get from sugar. They're saying that they should look at that in future work. Exactly. So this reminds me of this study that came out last month. Uh, it was a longitudinal study looking at a French population, and they looked at their diets and other health outcomes. And they found, finally, because they had enough people, and we hadn't been able to see this in any humans yet, a relationship between artificial sweeteners and cancer. Hmm. It had a 13% higher risk of overall getting cancer. And uh, these are at normal consumption levels for, for people. So that was a big thing that came out. Yeah, because it, it had been shown in animal studies before. Yeah, they in some of the original studies they were providing way too much of the sugar that you know would be an equivalent to twenty diet cokes yeah. and seeing yeah. oh they get cancer. Right. But this is the first time that we were actually able to see a relationship in humans mm-hmm. consuming quote unquote normal amounts of yeah a daily dose. You know the people who had this in their diet regularly. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is a study titled Artificial Sweeteners and Cancer Risk Results from Nutrinet Santé Population-Based Cohort Study. The first author was De Brasse, and the last author was a French name I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it came out in PLOS Medicine last month. Whoa. I'm going to go get a Diet Coke. (laughs) She wasn't joking, folks. She just went to get a Diet Coke. 
right after telling us right after telling us that it's increasing our risk of cancer mm. 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 <laughs> oh my insulin producing cells <laughs> they're off the chain right now they're going crazy so yeah that's the study on uh sugar and taste and how just the taste of things is leading to all these different changes in your body before anything else has happened got it got it your study that you're bringing to the show is a lot more fun and um, i'm excited about it it's in the journal animal cognition and the title is Context-dependent and seasonal fluctuation in bottlenose dolphin Tersiops truncatus vocalization. And it's from the Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute, or as we all know it, BDRI. The first author is Bruno Diaz-Lopez, and the last author is also Bruno Diaz-Lopez, because there's only one author. Okay, (laughs) I'm going to try to hold back on some of the, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking until the end here, but... Okay. Uh, And this introduction really does start out by saying, Since the dawn of time, (laughs) humans have studied animal communication. (laughs) Like those Greek and Roman dudes, like Aristotle, Pliny the Elder, some other guy whose name I can't pronounce either, all wrote a bunch of books with names like De Naturis Animalis. Oh yeah, Uh, that one. Yeah. That's on my bedside table regularly. I sound like the white person in a telenovela. <laughs> <laughs> Te quiero, de naturis animalis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, translated from Greek, that means, what's up with otters? Like, what's their deal? They're nice, right? I really hope they, they look nice. That's the subtitle of the right, Oh, right, yeah, right. <laughs> but in Greek, it says that, <laughs> which is like five paragraphs. Yeah. Uh, and then this is still in the introduction. Later, Darwin wrote something about animal communication, probably. So we have to cite that. I feel like you should point out again that first and last author of this paper <laughs> are the same author. <laughs> it's just. <weird. laughs> I I feel like maybe an editor might have helped here. Sure, but the fact that like that intro that you just described is mm-hmm. definitely why you have a PI to edit your yes, shit. Yes, yes, exactly. And remove <laughs> language like that. <laughs> well, I mean, in the old days, you could get away with this, but like academia, everyone is so stressed out. Like they don't have time. And it's, <laughs> especially like if it's like primary literature, like you're just reporting results. Uh-huh. This paper, you could literally lose the first four paragraphs and just be like, Here's the big picture contest, which doesn't involve citing Greek philosophers. You know, like Mm -hmm. it involves, you know, a review from 10 years ago. Uh, Okay. In animal communication. So this is the actual like setting the scene for like, why do we care about this paper? Okay. Biologists, they talk about communication. They're senders and receivers. Mm -hmm. And sort of like the first idea was like, oh, you want to communicate with like vocalizations or other signals. Excuse me, that's the technical term they use. They actually say, like, they're signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be beneficial to everybody, right? Like, if, if I have some way to tell you about something, then you and I both share information. So we both win. Yeah. And then uh, Richard Dawkins, who, as we all know, is a dick, came, <laughs> al- <laughs> came along and he had a more depressing theory here where he was like, yeah, but, like, what if the senders are lying? <laughs> <laughs> and because they, they want to lie and get away with it because their genes are selfish read my book 
<laughs> fucking sociopaths. <laughs> right. Richard Dawkins is such a dick that when I read him, I want to disagree with. I want to love a benevolent god. <laughs> <laughs> this, could you have framed this any more aggressively? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, aggressive or not, this this is a good point, right? Like, obviously, I could send a misleading signal, and that might in the long run help me uh, survive. So that's animal communication. Then we have vocal communication, which is a special type that is very loud. That we're doing right now. Yeah, right? I, we're doing it, and the question is why? And it's really easy. Like, you know what would be something else that would help send a signal mm-hmm. from very far away other than sound like light yeah light would be great it would be a lot faster than sound but the anatomy necessary right. to produce light <laughs> is so complex that you'd rather just be like hey right <laughs> you're right this i'm vibrating the air <laughs> <laughs> exactly very good point <laughs> whenever a bird makes a call that's actually what it's saying is Hey, hey, I'm yeah, vibrating yeah, the hey. air. I, hey, I'm a bird. <laughs> hey, I'm vibrating that's, the that's air. That's what I learned in my PhD, but uh, I like your new updated version, which is, hey, I'm vibrating the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But as far as I can tell, that's the main difference is what you just said. So in theory, we could have a fart language, right? Like where See, you... Does it only live in theory? I mean, there's probably some animals that communicate by fart, and we just haven't found them yet. They're probably underwater. Right. And it's like smoke signals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to think about that anymore. Okay. What made you think of... Okay, never mind. We're moving on. Yeah, I think we should just plow ahead. There has been a lot of work done on vocal communication, because there are a lot of species that can learn vocalizations, such as birds... Mm-hmm. Uh, some of their vocalizations, like their songs or like parrots that kind of have the same brain areas and do something that's like song. And we know that they learn it because that's why they can learn to say stuff like Polly wants a cracker. It's mm-hmm. the same brain system. Uh, and what we know is that whenever we, or very frequently at least, when we see this ability to like learn some sort of vocalizations, it's often some animal that has like a complex social structure. So one of the phrases you see which i'll admit i don't actually know what this means but you often you see people who study these animals talking about fish infusion structure which is something like yeah which is this idea that like oh i think i know what it is you tell me because i'm not sure (laughs) does it isn't that the forming and dissolution of social groups yeah that they like on the fly they form but that they can dissolve again Uh uh-huh yeah like Um, dating behavior in humans Right, exactly. Like uh, a flock of birds is just a giant polycule, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. <laughs> but up until the study, bottlenose dolphins have been neglected. Except, of course... They totally have not. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Except everybody knows that dolphins talk to each other in their squeaky, gorgeous... <laughs> oh, have, I, have you heard my dolphin impression? I just did. Yeah, well, now pretend you didn't and I'm going to do it. Uh, no, I haven't heard your dolphin impression on yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, uh... Thank you. How... <laughs> Thank you. Did you just curtsy? 
yes. So how many years did you spend learning that? Well, you know, uh, it takes me back to my time in Yale uh, uh -huh. drama school. It was <laughs> um, under the teacher Regaz Brunel. Yeah. No, it's like, it's like method acting, right? I mean, you basically became the dolphin. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Did you know they don't taste? Dolphins? They don't know how to taste. I've tasted a dolphin. They don't know how to taste. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing back some bad memories. I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... so of course, you are right. Many people are aware of dolphins in general, not necessarily bottlenose dolphins. Uh, we have TV's Flipper. Uh, we have famous uh, researcher from the 60s, John C. Lilly, who took a bunch of acid and then invented sensory deprivation tanks and then was in a, one of them with a dolphin. And This guy, just talking about this guy, does an enormous disservice to scientists everywhere. Yeah. Because he simply took a bunch of acid and ketamine and decided on different experiments. He was the guy who popularized the notion that dolphins are intelligent, social creatures, and we have a lot to learn from them. That wasn't in the zeitgeist before him. But... The shit that he did in studying yes. dolphins is highly unethical. And if you're interested, you should check out the dollop episode called The Dolphin. Yes, definitely. They set a dolphin up with a human girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> for about 10 weeks, they lived uh, together in uh -huh. a half wet, half dry environment. <laughs> and then they took her away from him and he got uh -huh. so depressed. Yeah. Just cruel. Reminds me of when I was in grad school. They also gave dolphins uh, LSD. Which is even worse. I mean, it was bad enough when I took it. Who was, Can't imagine. Who was taken away from you in grad school? <laughs> no, nothing, but I just I identify <laughs> with the dolphin. Okay. So there's a long, tawdry history of dolphin research leading up to this point, And Bruno Diaz-Lopez is here to rectify the record. Hell yeah. And just him. <laughs> <laughs> just him. I wonder, oh God, this guy living out on the water of Italy, yes. only looking at dolphins, and no grad student has decided to join him on this, probably I, I for some yeah. reasons. <laughs> I got to know what's going on here. I, yeah. I mean, he cites himself. He's a self-cider. <laughs> he's a self and, it, and it'll be like 10 citations in a row, like in the methods section. He's like, you know, this data was collected over 10 years. And then mm -hmm. he immediately cites himself like Diaz-Lopez, 2006, 2014, 2010. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then there's one paper in there with like one other author. So like someone was there at some point. Interesting, a mystery. Yeah. But he's in Sardinia, uh, which is an, an island off of Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is where the... Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute is. I, I would love to know more. You know, you you get a feeling of a certain sort of vibe in this environment where <laughs> it's like the sort of dry research article way of saying like, yeah, I hung out with dolphins for 10 years. <laughs> Just me. Right? He has a ponytail. Well, let's, right. let's definitely decide <laughs> has, that right now. Yeah, he definitely has a ponytail. Yes. I'm possibly like a, and some sort of facial hair. You uh, think? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. In the dry research paper where he's saying, he's talking about like acoustic recordings and behavioral data, like all behavioral ob observations were from the author himself. And this is very important because this way the, uh, there couldn't be any issue with inter-rater reliability. 
Which is, <laughs> she's like, yeah, but normally yeah, the you want. That is, if you're wrong, everything is wrong. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. And then immediately after that, so like the whole point of this study, as they said in the intro, we sort of glossed over, but like they set it up as like, what we don't know is who's interacting with who mm-hmm. in these bottlenose dolphin fish infusion groups. And how does that change over the year? Like as you go through the seasons, they have mm-hmm. like a mating season. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to figure that out. So he has all these behavioral observations, but it's only him. And then right in this, now we're in the methods and he's like, by the way, it's really hard to identify who's who because they're like in the water and it's just me staring at them. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically what he says. Also, there's like at least a whole paragraph where he's talking about how he figured out the sex of the dolphin. Yeah. Tell us about that. He's like, sex was determined by visual inspection of the genital area, which was possible when the dolphins, this is in parentheses now, which was possible when the dolphins were bow riding the boat, dolphins humping the boat, by underwater (laughs) observations or by taking photographs when the dolphins jumped out of the water. So he's alone (laughs) off the coast of Italy photographing dolphin genitals. (laughs) He's he's single or he has like a a very strange wife. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, if he has a wife, he calls her his partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are totally coming down hard on this guy. Now. I know. I am so sorry. <laughs> sorry, Bruno. I mean, it's the, just... The story you ended up telling in this paper was so much more rich than the text on the page. <laughs> yes. There's a novel here waiting to be written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so finally, in the methods, he's telling us about the types of vocalizations, because this is what they're going to care about. I found this helpful video about dolphin communication online, and it has a postdoc in it named Dr. Stephanie Watwood. Hi, my name is Stephanie Watwood. I'm a postdoctoral investigator at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Who explains a lot of concepts. I study how animals use sound to communicate with one another. So she's going to be helping us out throughout this part of the podcast. So they say there's three types. Bottlenose dolphins produce three main types of sounds. The first are echolocation clicks, which they use to sense their environment. There's whistles. Which sound just like the whistles that you or I make. Which is kind of like probably what people would be familiar with. These are also used for social communication, usually in friendlier interactions. Uh, If you've ever seen like recordings of dolphin calls underwater. Mm -hmm. For some species, I don't know if it's all species, this is like the thing that I think is most learned. And it, it looks like, I mean, it looks like a whistle. It's, it's like bird song where it seems like it can be identifying them. Here's an example of a whistle. Right, so that's, that's a whistle. And that's like, as it sounds, very whistly. And we, we think that that could help identify who's who. Hmm. While bottlenose dolphins make many kinds of whistles, every dolphin has its own unique whistle, which we call a signature whistle. This might be similar to an animal saying its own name. Animals produce their signature whistles when they are separated from their group and are trying to reunite with particular individuals. And then, at least as I understand it, there wasn't a lot of like why these calls are the way they are in the paper. The other thing that they just sort of say this is a category without talking about the why are are what they call burst pulses. Mm -hmm. Which are used for social communication, often in aggressive interactions. And here's an example of a burst pulse. Yeah, so as you can tell, those are kind of like squawky and they have like a lower frequency. 
And all of that is not the the typical dolphin sound that you remember from Flipper, the impression that I gave. <laughs> that it's like uh -huh. the out of water sound. This is all recorded yeah, yeah. from under under the sea. Da -da -da -da. Right, they've got the hydrophone down under the sea. Oh, yeah. Do you want to play a pointless educational game? Yes. It's time for pointless educational games. Ow! All right, so the primary piece of equipment used is something to record the fucking dolphins. It's as important as the boat to get you to where the dolphins are. It's called an omnidirectional H2A Aquarian Hydrophone. This was uh -huh. the mic that was used to pick up all of these calls. Yeah, which probably people probably know this. It was also used on the Radiohead album. Okay, <laughs> <computer. laughs> it is so banal looking. It's just this simple little bud at the end of a long cord. Okay, so that's a picture of one of these guys. How much do you think that costs? Uh, I mean, I've bought things for scientific research before. You are familiar with how ridiculously expensive something that unassuming can be. 4000 Oh, wow. That's way... Okay. Uh, lower. Did I go way over it? Lower? Yeah, okay. you did. Go in a direction. Okay. Lower. Uh, $500? is $1,806. 2000 bucks for a thing that looks like a... That fucking thing. Guitar cord with like a... <laughs> Folding table legs stuck on the end. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pointless. Uh, okay, so now that we have this really expensive microphone, what we're going to do, he starts to jump into the results here. Mm -hmm. So there's five males and five females, and they're all parts of dyads. So dyad is just what it sounds like, a pair, like die, right? And it can be male um, and female or male and male. Or male, male. never yes. female and female, apparently. In yeah, dolphins. which was surprising. Yeah. Yes. I wonder what's up with that. I don't know what's going on there. I feel like there's going to be a review like female, female dyads that's going to blow everyone's mind in like <laughs> 10 years. Did you, um, is this a good time to bring up a hate crime? I thought you were going to make a clitoris joke, but go ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> another thing hidden in this text is a crime that was perpetrated against a dolphin named G1. <laughs> how, wait, how did I miss this? What? All right. G1 <laughs> had to be removed from the study because he died. Now I'm sad, Amio. All individuals present in the dyads, except for one male, G1, that died in December 2006. We're cited more than 100 bloody blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what's up with this G1? The only other time that it's mentioned is all males except G1, which only formed dyads with other males, formed both types of dyads, either by associating with another male or with a female. I think this was a hate crime. <laughs> you think Bruno Diaz Lopez killed the gay dog? No! <laughs> but I do think there was a gay dolphin that was murdered here. Uh-huh. By the other dolphins. I'm thinking by the other dolphins, but you, you uh -huh. bring up a good point. He was probably blowing through some of the assumptions that were made by this author, ruining mm -hmm. his idea that there's going to be dyads with males and females, and so he was eliminated. When you got to blowing, I thought that sentence was going to end differently, but... <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> There had to be a blowing joke in this this episode, <laughs> right. right? 
Oh, well, I'm, I have this text highlighted. So the dyads were like 29% of the time they were a male and a male and 71% of the time they were a male with a female. I, maybe there's more that I don't like background. I don't know, but like he already told us it's hard to figure out who's who. Going into sort of like when he starts reporting the main results, he's saying like, this is 30% of the dyads that these five males and females were involved in. So we're not even like, I'm not even sure if we're like seeing the whole picture here, right? It's like, he basically picked like the five that I think he had, you know, five males and five females he had something for the whole time. Oh, okay. okay. I didn't see that. It's sort of confusing because yeah, he gives you all these like summary statistics in the methods section. And then when you get to mm-hmm. the results, he's like, oh, but we only kept these 10. That's, that's at least okay. that's how I'm reading it now. So he analyzes for these 10, all their calls between each other for, you know, like 10 years. And basically what he sees... 10 years. 10 years, yes. <laughs> and sort of like the main takeaway is that they make a bunch more noise in the summer, which makes sense because that's their mating season. And it's a particular type of coal, right? Yes. That increases. Right. So the burst pulses are the ones that there's many more of. And specifically, the burst pulses in male-female dyads. So he like... He shows us some box and whisker plots, and it's very obvious that this is the case. Uh, and he also does some statistics, which I'm a little bit mystified because he's just like, I have all these numbers. I'll do some statistics. One of these is significant. I don't know what to make of that. This is another part of the paper where I realized the importance of graduate students to be able to employ new techniques and software to visualize data because figure two's chart is something that i've recognized from our programming it's like uh-huh you think <laughs> you think this is just like the basic ggplot yeah yeah this is ggplot uh-huh. 2 it's the default setting where it's the gray background and white lines that is somehow for some reason that's how they set it up as like how all charts should be and it is not changed uh-huh. <laughs> Which, which yeah, fine. Okay, sure. But then also figure four is grainy. It's, it's yes. very low quality. Yeah, yeah. Figure four looks like it's very... So figure four is like a network diagram. Yeah, that one's kind of cool. The, the idea is cool, yes. Yeah, this network diagram has um, each node or circle represents a different dolphin. And it shows the lines between the dolphins that have formed dyads and it reminded me very much of like a middle school cafeteria which i could (laughs) see like having this between like the girls at table four and you know their relationship to one another uh the clicks Mm -hmm. yes that's basically the results there's there's this network diagram with these edges that that are they're thicker or thinner depending on like the communications between them Mm -hmm. That's related to a number, which will come up again. They, they call this a general affiliation index, which I wasn't sure how they compute. But um, Well, some of the original studies that used that index were in middle school girls. And it was a way of <laughs> right. accurately representing who is hot and who is not. <laughs> yeah. You have the hot or not diagram. And then you have... <laughs> you have the box plots, which are showing us that there's very clearly this... Increased during the summer and very clearly between males and females. It's, and it's mostly the burst pulse. Although I would say, you know, there's some higher sounds for some other behaviors in like spring and summer, like in male, male. But fine. That's sort of like, that's their takeaway for us. 
Yeah. And the, the other thing that he really emphasizes is that there's an inverse correlation between the number of burst pulses and the uh, this GAI, this general affiliation index. So mm-hmm. in a male-female dyad, mm-hmm. if, you, if you were less affiliated, there was more vocalization, specifically the burst pulse. Less affiliated, you'll get more burst pulse. Yeah. And maybe that's because burst pulse is associated with aggression. Yeah, that's right. what they're trying to say. And so speaking of antagonistic behavior, can we hear a dolphin fight? Yes, we're going to hear it. It's like a cockfight, but with dolphins. It's called a dolphin rumble. It just sounds like crazy buzzing. <laughs> Are you fucking with me? <laughs> Why is there like weird jazz in the background? Oh, because it's from a documentary. <laughs> but the buzzing on top of it is... Yeah. That's like 20 dolphins fighting each other. Yeah. Holy shit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's intense. It sounds mad. So the, those are the burst pulse sounds. I think it must be something like that. In mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he cites some papers, Bruno, at the end that are, that are like, yeah, there's previous work showing that these burst pulses are antagonistic. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining it's the male yelling at the female because male dolphins do not treat women dolphins very well. Really? Is that... Is there other work? Yeah, well, there's I, that is evidence the, of rape in dolphins. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I've—that's what I've heard too. Yeah. You know, this is just an ad for the dollop. <laughs> All right, but at one point, uh, the dolphin Peter was trying to court or fuck mm. the the female mm-hmm. participant, and he would roll his teeth against her thigh. <laughs> Should I try that? Uh. <laughs> on dolphins yes <laughs> thanks for the tip yeah so dolphins are skeezy mm-hmm. i think we've learned and they can be aggressive in the in the paper he says that they might like you said might be males directed to females he wasn't sure yeah that was one of the major limitations of the study you can't tell who is talking and when yeah. according right. to these recordings yeah that's the main thing we want to know, right? Like, I mean, this. Let's face it. This stuff is hard. Yeah. Especially if one microphone costs two k. And trying to videotape these interactions from far away is just going to not be possible. You're not going to be able to look at the mouths and be able to read the. But you would think if you had enough different versions of the dolphins forming different dyads, you would be mm-hmm. able to see which. Like, if they had different voices? Yeah, it would be really hard. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the machine learning stuff that people are doing now, like, if you had enough data, I bet you could do it. But you would basically need to, like, have multiple microphones, multiple cameras, mm-hmm. be underwater. Jesus. Yeah. Have multiple people annotating them. But that's the thing you actually want to know. Because the thing that I think is not clear from this is exactly what you're saying. Like, basically what you need is some sort of, like, model sort of like the network diagram he shows us that's like trying to assert some hypothesis about like how do they interact with each other Mm -hmm. i don't know what the quite the form of that model would be i know that people have tried to come up with this for like birds 
And then you would want to see like, okay, I, I have my jabillion hours of data that I annotated and used fancy machine learning methods. Yeah. Does it fit like my network model that evolves over time somehow? He made like a valiant effort. This is like one dude making a valiant effort. Bruno, God bless you. But At least in bird research, you can tell which one's the male and which exactly. one's the female. Y- usually, yes. You're not, he's not able or one is not able to decipher the voice of a particular dolphin. Yeah. But we do know that there are some elements of words that dolphins possess the ability of expressing. Um, I think it's, we definitely know they say their name. A signature whistle. And they'll introduce themselves and other dolphins will replicate that name as well. But Mm -hmm. other than that, I I don't know of any evidence of other language aspects that they possess. For bile-nosed dolphins, their daily lives are centered around their social interactions. And they're dependent upon the sounds they make to find one another, to maintain social bonds, and for just about everything that they do in their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this... It would be really surprising if we ever find it. I think we won't have a Dr. Doolittle moment where we find a species that's like has a straight up language, mm. right? And I don't even think this is true for all dolphin species. I'm not sure which ones can do it and which ones can't. So some of them definitely have these like names. It's like a bird where it's like, I have my song and that's how you know who I am. Kind of, but that's with birds that doesn't identify an individual. It does. No, but I mean, like, it doesn't say. It literally does. Like, there's a difference between a name and how somebody generally speaks, right? But like, no. So each each individual bird, like every, Mm -hmm. or for example, like a a white, you know, a white crowned sparrow. So like individuals will stake out their territory, and and they'll all have a, a similar song. But each individual will have a unique song that's basically like saying, like, I'm me. But that's only being produced by the individual. Another yeah. individual can't use that song to sure. potentially talk about the first individual. Yeah, they don't, like they don't usually imitate each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the like, dolphin research well enough to know. I feel like it's different species have different abilities. Yeah, these are uh, Italian dolphins, so right. they, they speak a certain way. Right, they use a lot of flipper gestures. I see what you're doing with your flipper there. You're making like a kind of a munja, like a... <laughs> I, I think it would have to fold in on itself a little bit to give that full <laughs> right. like, yes. Italian gesture. <laughs> they probably uh, have accents. I bet oh, they, they have accents. They for sure have accents. The Italian dolphins? Yeah. <laughs> Well, because sure. bottlenose dolphins are also swim in the Atlantic Ocean. I know down in Florida and like the Caribbean. So I bet there's a different accent there for to sure. the there, squeaks or be. whatever. Yes. I don't know. It's going to be so cool. It's called dialects, dolphin dialects. How interesting or boring do you think Lopez is at a party? <laughs> oh, interesting as hell. He, really? He's the, yeah. Um, he's got stories. He's got stories. Okay. Well, hopefully one of them is about G1. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We need to meet Diaz Lopez and we want to hear the story of G1. The tragic tale. Yeah. Oh, a tale like a dolphin. (laughs) Get out of here. So they basically learned that the burst pulsed sounds probably play an important role in mate acquisition. Or or they're like, come on, Sarah. (laughs) Come, God, hurry up. (laughs) 
Yes. I think that's the main takeaway. Okay. Is that a lot of dude dolphins are just like... Jesus. I mean, dolphin Jesus. <laughs> I'm too pleased by that. Okay, closing ceremony. Time to sing. Ready? Go. Do you know that I used to be a musician? I really, I don't know this song. Well used enough. to be? Yes. All right, it's time for closing ceremonies. Thank you for listening to our crazy uh, discussion on flies, sugar, the fact that dolphins can't taste anything, the how rapey dolphins are. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. <laughs> <gasps> dolphins are really... <laughs> we, we managed to avoid dolphin rape for most of the episode. Yeah, okay, all right. Closing ceremonies. <laughs> so my takeaway that I hope uh, everybody uh, gets to enjoy this little piece of information Last episode, we talked about psychopathy and how it might not be a mental disorder and instead could be an adaptation or an adaptive trait that would help somebody continue and and spread their genes. Well, how exactly do you accomplish that if you're a psychopath? Well, you can lie to women and um, be the bad boy and get attention that way. Or like a lot of human abnormalities... Psychopathy also has its fetishists. Hybristophilia is sexual interest in and attraction to those who commit crimes. It's a paraphilia in which sexual arousal, facilitation, and attainment of orgasm are responsive to and contingent upon knowing that your partner has committed a crime. We're talking about that chick that's really into Martin Shkreli. Yeah, there's that. There's the the Bundy girls. One of them ended up marrying or accepting his marriage proposal on the stand. Uh, There was a bunch of women interested in Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And it's this particular paraphilia. It's definitely helpful when a criminal wants to uh, uh, have a sexy. I think I'm just tired. Yeah. There's a lid to every pot. Even if I don't want to think about it. So your takeaway is that hybristophilia exists. Yeah, it's uh, something that I had written down in my notes for the last episode, but I didn't. Um, hmm. I didn't share that. Now it's so. back. Coming back from last week, it's a request for hybristophilia. Top of the charts. <laughs> we want to know how psychopaths fuck. <laughs> uh, I have a takeaway. Okay. My takeaway after hearing you talk about hybristophilia is that I want to move away from all humans. Here's some more dolphins. Possibly move to Italy. <laughs> yeah, I want to get a job at the bottom of this Dolphin oh. Research Institute. I think we all... In the Mediterranean. Oh. Yeah, sounds amazing. I, f- I feel like I could go help Bruno out. He's an island. <laughs> no man is an island, except Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just go ahead and do, do you want to just, you you finish up the episode here. I'll just, I'm going to go. Seriously. Thank you very much for bringing that paper to the show because <laughs> like I had mentioned, just the story that it tells without actually telling it is so yeah. rich. If you've ever had to write a science paper and then you read a paper like that, you're like, there's more, <laughs> there's more, <laughs> I mean, not that I'm like the best writer ever, but I'm like, there's, yeah, there's a rich culture going on here that. No, it's fine. There needs to be a documentary about the Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute. That's my takeaway. Yeah, it starts off about the Bottlenose Dolphins, and then the subject of the film 
slowly transitions into <laughs> into Bruno. <laughs> and I also think it's interesting that uh, all during this talk about uh, animal communication, my cat has just been crying for attention. <laughs> so Mine you guys as well. Get to enjoy that. Yeah. All right. So please follow the show on Twitter at MisbehaviorJC and Instagram at the same thing. You can find me at CurlsPhD, and you can find Nicole Davies at... The Nicole Davies. Our off-missed co-host, Leah, will be back for our next episode. Yay. Thank you for allowing us into your auditory pathway, as well as some dolphin sounds. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, just don't tell your PI. Please subscribe, follow the show, and we hope you join the club again soon. Okay, I'm going to hang up now. Okay. No, wait. (laughs) They call him Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. No one you see is smarter than he. And we know Flipper.